Father, we ask for our hearts to be stirred this morning as we um, encounter your word together. We ask for your spirit to bring it to life uh, for us. Um, Lord, we long to love you more. And we ask that you would um, teach our hearts to love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, we're going to take a little break today from our series in Acts. We've been doing Acts for the last few months. Uh, We're going to take a break today and then through uh, Advent, and we're going to pick it up again in the new year. So we get a little little break from Acts, but there's more to come. Today we're going to study Psalm 45. So if you have a Bible handy, uh, please turn up Psalm 45. Uh, First person to find it in the Black Bibles can shout out a page number. Uh, we're looking at Psalm 45 today. 471. 471. Thank you, Taylor. <laughs> Psalm 45. So um, as we've said a couple of times, today is Christ the King Sunday. Um, and so I want to look at Psalm 45 because it is a love song to the King. Okay, a love song to the King. So if you look at this psalm, you'll see that at the top, before verse 1 starts, there's an inscription on the psalm. There's a little part in italics uh, that wasn't read aloud earlier, but um, it's there. And it's in the Hebrew text, so the inscription of the psalm is part of God's word. Um, And it it tells us what the psalm's about. Um, So this inscription says, To the choir master, according to lilies, a maskil of the sons of Korah, a love song. Okay, so that's what Psalm 45 says in the uh, inscription. And that's quite a long, detailed inscription. Um, And so here's what it means. Uh, It says it was delivered to the choir master. So that means that this psalm was intended for temple worship. Um, It has a suggested tune to go with it, a suggested tune to sing it to, uh, called Lilith, which I will now sing for you. Now, sadly, I can't sing it for you um, because nobody knows it anymore. It's a tune that's been lost to us. It says this psalm's a maskil. Um, and that's a description of some of the psalms, about a, a dozen other psalms are called maskils. And no matter how hard we look at them, we can't figure out what the word means. Um, it's probably some sort of contemplative poem. Um, this one was written by the sons of Korah. Um, and they wrote a few of the psalms, about 11 altogether. Um, but it's hard to pin down from that description exactly the historical context because uh, Korah was a contemporary of Moses. He lived at the same time as Moses, and he was a direct descendant of Levi. Um, So the sons of Korah were Levites who had uh, oversight of temple worship, Um, but they lasted a long time. They could have been writing uh, the Psalms pretty much during any uh, period of the kings. Okay, so that's the first part. Doesn't tell us much. Here's the most important part, the last part, okay? It says that this psalm is a love psalm. Um, And verse uh, 1 of the psalm tells us who the love song is for. It says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. Okay, so uh, Psalm 45 is a love song to the king. And it's pretty gushy. Uh, The psalmist says his heart overflows with a pleasing theme. That Hebrew word for pleasing is tov. It means good, pleasing, excellent, favorable, joyous, and precious. It's a theme to get excited about. 
And then he says, my tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. So he's overflowing with words. He's eager to speak. The words just want to gush out of his heart. Um, so he's a bit like a young man who's infatuated with a beautiful woman. And he just can't contain his admiration for her. He just has to let it out in a song or a poem, uh, in words that are just full of praise and wonder. You're so amazing. You captivate me. That's the sort of song that this psalm is. It's a love song, and it's directed toward the king. So from our perspective, that might be pretty strange, <laughs> uh, even weird, because uh, this nation where we live has no great love of kings, right? We worked pretty hard to get rid of the last one. Um, and few, if any, of this country's presidents have attracted this kind of love and admiration. Uh, you might find a poem like this written to a president in the past, um, but we might think that was a bit weird. Uh, because the best that we hope for in our leaders now is that they do a decent job, they avoid spiraling debt and nuclear war, and they stay out of our business as much as possible. So here in this psalm is an idea that's strange and foreign to us, right? A love song to the king. Uh, we have a huge cultural canyon to cross before it makes sense to us emotionally. But I want to challenge us this morning that we do need to cross it because we have a king in heaven who calls for our love. And we need to love Jesus as our king. So hopefully we do love him. We love him as friend, as savior, as comforter, as healer, and maybe as creator and provider. But we also need to love him as our king for the specific qualities that he has because he's our king. And Psalm 45 can teach us how to do that. Because Psalm 45 was most probably written to a real human king, right? One of the kings of Israel. And we don't know which one. None of them seem to truly deserve it. Not even David. Um, and in its, in its admiration of a human king, the psalm is exaggerating and idealizing, right? So it's seeing the full realization of qualities that can only be partial at best in human kings. But as the psalm admires these qualities in human kings and idealizes them, it's really admiring kingliness. Right? It's admiring kingliness. So the human king becomes a signpost that points ahead toward true majesty. This is what divine majesty must look like. We catch a glimpse of it here in our own king, but it makes us long for more. And it points us ahead to the true object of our love and desire. So that means that we recognize this psalm as a prophecy. It's a prophecy about the true king who we now know as Jesus. And as we heard earlier from 2 Peter, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Psalm 45 is a love song inspired by the Holy Spirit to King Jesus. It's a love song to Jesus as King, and it's a song that we must teach our own hearts to sing. So here are three words from Psalm 45 to describe kingliness, kingliness, beauty, glory, and victory. They're all words that good human kings aspire to. Beauty of clothes and palaces and gardens, glory of wealth and building projects and great deeds, and victory over all enemies through military strength. 
the greatest human kings have led lives full of beauty and glory and victory. And they're the same words that Psalm 45 uses to describe God's great king. So he's like the other kings that we might have known or read about, but he's also different. And here's why. We see in this king that his greatest beauty is holiness. His greatest glory is kindness. And his greatest victory is sacrifice. So those are the ideas that we're going to explore this morning. First, his greatest beauty is holiness. So the king in Psalm 45 does have great beauty. Verse 2 says, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. That word for handsome comes from the Hebrew word that means to shine or be bright. And it describes people or objects that are extremely fair or beautiful. It only appears eight times in the Old Testament in Hebrew. Three of them are in the Song of Songs, describing the beautiful, beloved young woman, who in Song of Songs is surpassingly beautiful. So the king is beautiful, of a kind of beauty that attracts admiration and love. And he's also charming. It says, grace is poured upon your lips. And that word grace is somewhere between kindness and charm. And it's poured lavishly on his lips. He speaks with gentleness and with favor to everyone he meets. Later in verse 8, it says, his robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. And those are the scents of passion and romance, which are common in the Song of Songs. This king lives in ivory palaces. He rides out in splendor. The psalm is full of the language of beauty. It uses the most elevated words the Hebrew language has for describing anything as beautiful or desirable. But this king is also deeply good, right? He's God's king. He rides out in verse 4 for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. And in verse 7, he has loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And it says, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So this king is God's king because God has anointed him. That's the Hebrew word, mashach, and it's the word that gives us our word, Messiah. He's anointed, and God has anointed him with the oil of gladness, which in Hebrew is this beautiful phrase, shemen shashon. Shemen Shashon, the oil of joy. This king is good, and it's his goodness that's the most beautiful thing about him. So the physical beauty and handsomeness and charm and sweet fragrance are lovely, and they're blessings from God, but they're only signposts to his true beauty. His true beauty is his holiness. So we all know instinctively that a king who's extremely beautiful, handsome, and charming, but who loves evil and practices wickedness ceases to be admirable in any way. A tyrant is repulsive, no matter how good he smells. Um, so we all watched Disney's Frozen, and we all ended up preferring Kristoff to Hans, right? And the reverse is also true, that holiness is beautiful regardless of the externals, which is something that Jesus proved when he came, because he came with none of the external beauty of kingliness. Isaiah 53 says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. But nevertheless, he had all the beauty 
that Psalm 45 is talking about because of his gracious speech, his kindness, his integrity, his truthfulness, and his sinless life. He came brimming over with true majesty, with true kingly beauty, even though he wore no fine clothes and probably didn't smell that great. We love and worship Jesus for the beauty of his holiness, and we seek to beautify ourselves by pursuing his holiness through the prompting and power of the Holy Spirit. So Peter wrote to Christian women in his first letter, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And that's a specific application to women, but the principle is true for all of us. There's nothing wrong with being clean and presentable on the outside. In fact, it's a gift to our community. Uh, but our attention should be to focus on the inside, because it sounds like a Disney cliche, but it's true. True beauty really does come from within. Uh, the king proves it, because no one's more beautiful than the king, and the king's greatest beauty is his holiness. So as we love and value beauty and want to be beautiful ourselves, let's make sure the focus of our attention is on holiness, on the hidden person of the heart. Not on the right clothes and the right photos, the right videos, the right social media posts, the right branding, but on the right heart. So that's the first thing we see in this king in Psalm 45. His greatest beauty is holiness. Now second, his greatest glory is kindness. Verse 3 says, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. So the king rides out gloriously in splendor and majesty, but his true glory is his kindness. He fights for the cause of truth, for speaking of things as they are, and for meekness, which means gentleness and humility and clemency and for righteousness, which simply means whatever is right, naturally or morally or legally right, straight, correct, as it should be. These are the reasons that the king rides out in splendor. And while the psalmist praises the king for loving righteousness and hating wickedness, he also said of God, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your scepter, the scepter of your kingdom, is a scepter of uprightness. Right? The scepter of uprightness. That is a beautiful word in the Hebrew. Uprightness comes from the word meaning uh, a plain, flat land, a level place. Um, and so here it means equity, justice, fairness, everyone standing on an equal footing. And that means that God fights for the underdog. He takes up the cause of the downtrodden. He humbles the proud and lifts up the lowly. So his glory is kind. And this idea comes back at the end of the psalm. Verse 13 says, All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. Now, our English isn't as clear as the Hebrew in this verse, because a princess could be a foreign princess, uh, or a, a woman who was betrothed to marry the king. Uh, but the Hebrew specifically calls her the king's daughter. She's his precious young princess. And so she's all glorious because of the glory he has given her. Verse 14, in many colored robes she is led to the king. That's talking about finely embroidered dresses. 
with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. So the princess is glad and glorious because she's his. The king is able to communicate his glory. He's able to make her glorious. He's able to make her joyful. And actually, that's his chief glory. Because if this is a prophecy about King Jesus, then who is the princess in this song? It's you. It's you or me. It's a soul that Jesus has saved, an adopted daughter of God, made glorious. So this entrance into the courts of the king is a picture of you coming home with joy and gladness and with glory. So how amazing is this king that he's able to make even wounded and broken people glorious? It reflects glory back to him. So our prayer book has a prayer that says, God shows his glory chiefly in showing mercy. By taking a poor sinner, dirty, destitute, and dying, and raising him up to new life, wonderful, rich, full, joyful life, God shows himself more glorious than any number of ivory palaces could say. Saving us makes him look good. Bringing us to glory is his glory. And that's just one more reason to be sure that he's going to do it. And it's a wonderful reason for us to be kind. So think about it. From this perspective of God, the whole world is upside down. Because in the world, people win glory for themselves by competing. The strong rise by clambering over the weak. And those who work their way to power then wield it over others. So their glory comes at the expense of others. And promoting myself over you is the opposite of kindness. But not so with God. Because with God, his kindness makes him more and more glorious, not less. And in God's economy, that's true for his people too. Our kindness is our true glory because it makes us more like God. So the more I raise you, the more I raise myself. It's not a competition with God. In, in our faith, kindness is of great worth. And so if we follow this king, he will make us more and more kind. A kindness that doesn't know any boundaries. So his greatest beauty is holiness. His greatest glory is kindness. And now third, his greatest victory is sacrifice. Psalm 45 is talking about a victorious king. It says in verse 4, In your majesty ride out victoriously. And then in verse 5, Your arrows are sharp. In the heart of the king's enemies, the peoples fall under you. This God is victorious. This king is victorious and triumphant. And we know that King Jesus did triumph. He was victorious. He won what Christians recognize as the greatest victory in the history of the world. He defeated Satan and sin and death. But in doing so, he didn't loose any arrows, nor ride a horse, nor swing a sword, and no human enemies fell under him. Instead, his victory came through sacrifice. He went willingly to his own death on the cross. So we read part of that story earlier from Mark chapter 15. And it says there that the Roman soldiers clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed. 
and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. So those soldiers mocked his majesty. They mocked the very heart of who he was as their king. And if you think about it, before them stood history's greatest king, with more holy beauty and more majestic glory than David or Solomon or any Roman emperor could muster. And a king who was about to win a greater victory than any of them could have dreamed of. And right at his moment of victory, they made fun of him. And Jesus stood there and bore it. How lovely he is in his patient nobility. How worthy of the real crown he was about to receive. Who could ask for a more magnificent king? He's won many victories, great and small, commanded armies of men and angels, struck down empires, overpowered the magicians of Egypt, outfired the prophets of Baal, and sent pagan statues sprawling on their faces. But can any of those victories even be compared with the victory of the cross? His greatest victory was sacrifice. And that's true for us too. Whatever we might accomplish in our lives, however great, however successful and victorious, we will never be able to claim any victory greater than this, that I denied myself and I laid down my life for my friend. That is the greatest victory we will ever claim. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. Psalm 45 can teach us to sing a love song to Jesus as our king. He's a king who's worth following. Not just following, worth obeying, worth admiring, adoring, worth loving, worth our devotion and our praise. A king worth living for. A king worth dying for. A king who lacks nothing on any other king in beauty and glory and victory, but whose greatest beauty is holiness, his greatest glory is kindness, and his greatest victory is sacrifice. So hear, O daughter. We come to verse 10 of the psalm, which gives us our instructions. Hear, O daughter. That's the Hebrew word, Shema. It means listen up. God's about to make an important announcement. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty, since he is your Lord. Bow to him. So the Psalms talked about us as servants of the king, and then as daughter of the king. And now we see the intimacy increases even a step further and it's talking about people as bride to the king. This is the call on your heart and life. As you sit here, listen to God calling you. It's a massive call, an immense sacrifice, and a priceless invitation. Forget your people and your father's house. Leave everything you know behind. Like Abraham, leave the country where you were born and forget everyone you've ever known. Leave behind everything that makes you feel secure, everything you've learned to trust that makes sense to you, all the plans that you were making, all the dreams you were dreaming, and everything you thought you wanted out of your life. Leave it. Forget it. Never look at it again. And want this instead. For the king desires your beauty. Can you believe it? Can you even imagine it? This good and glorious king desires you. He wants your beauty. He calls you 
to come to him. To leave your hovel behind and come and live in the palace. To strip off your tattered old rags and bathe and put on a new dress laced with gold. The king desires you. Yes, you. Do you hear his call? It's such a huge decision. And real women in the past have had to make just this kind of decision. Some of them are in the Bible. They were called by a king to leave the old life behind and begin a completely new life. Better or worse, how could they know? And often they had no choice. Maybe it's harder to have a choice. And to have this enormous decision before us, the old life we know or the new. But this king is beautiful and glorious. And he's calling to us, for us to bow in worship to him, for he is our Lord. So the challenge for us from this psalm is, have we turned our full attention on him? Does he command our gaze and our delight and our desire? Or are we sneaking sly glances backward to the old life in the hovel? Or are we trying to smuggle in some of the old dreams and old pleasures on the side? By obeying his command to forget our people and our father's house is the only way that we can come in and give him our full love and attention so that we can be fully his body, mind, and soul. It's like a marriage. It is a marriage. It's bigger than a marriage. Marriage is like this. And it's an unbelievable invitation, an unimaginable privilege to come and be joined to the eternal king whose beauty is holiness, whose glory is kindness, and whose victory is sacrifice. Amen.